Welcome back to another episode of Who's to Say. I'm your host, Tom Foolery, and today I'm declaiming one of the most iconic speeches from modern literature, what is affectionately and commonly known as the money speech from Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Before I read this book for the first time several years ago, might be seven or eight years ago at this point, I was told about this speech, so was sort of looking out for it throughout the early pages of the book, but it lands so abruptly and with such an impact that the second time around when I read it recently, it really made me pause and reflect on so much of the depth of the content of this speech. And not to put words in Ms. Rand's mouth, but having heard some subsequent interviews from her over the years, she has a very rationalistic, somewhat materialistic philosophy. And so her rationale behind some of the dialogue and thoughts of her characters may not align with my more esoteric philosophies. However, with something as material as money, which we ascribe value to, there is a lot of significance to how she portrays it through this speech. And I won't spoil too much of the of the background here, talk about it a little bit afterward and share my thoughts with you, but this is deserving of its place in the annals of literature, literary history, because it's really a magnificent philosophical expression through dialogue. And the character, by way of some context for those of you who haven't read the book, the character who speaks throughout this this uh, these several pages in the next several minutes is perceived to be a playboy billionaire with no real concrete cares in the world. And that's probably the greatest criticism against him is that he has no love of man and he has no philanthropic endeavors that he gives himself to and shines a light on for his own benefit. So when he is speaking to this room full of people, this is really the first time that a lot of people who don't know him are grasping the full spectrum of his intelligence and of his view on life. And from this opening line, you can really get a taste of just how profound and how impactful Francisco is aiming to be. He's trying to stir up a great deal of change with his admonitions and with his aggression in a way. So without further ado, here is the money speech. So you think that money is the root of all evil. Have you ever asked, what is the root of money? Money is a tool of exchange which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. Money is not the tool of moochers, who claim your product by tears, or of looters, who take it from you by force. Money is made possible only by the men who produce. Is this what you consider evil? 
When you accept money in payment for your effort, you do so only on the conviction that you will exchange it for the product of the effort of others. It is not the moochers or the looters who give value to money. Not an ocean of tears, not all the guns in the world, can transform those pieces of paper in your wallet into the bread you will need to survive tomorrow. Those pieces of paper, which should have been gold, are a token of your honor, your claim upon the energy of the men who produce. Your wallet is your statement of hope that somewhere in the world around you there are men who will not default on that moral principle which is the root of money. Is this what you consider evil? Have you ever looked for the root of production? Take a look at an electric generator and dare tell yourself that it was created by the muscular effort of unthinking brutes. Try to grow a seed of wheat without the knowledge left to you by men who had to discover it for the first time. Try to obtain your food by means of nothing but physical motions. And you'll learn that man's mind is the root of all the goods produced and of all the wealth that has ever existed on earth. But you say that money is made by the strong at the expense of the weak. What strength do you mean? It is not the strength of guns or muscles. Wealth is the product of man's capacity to think. Then is money made by the man who invents a motor at the expense of those who did not invent it? Is money made by the intelligent at the expense of the fools? By the able at the expense of the incompetent? By the ambitious at the expense of the lazy? Money is made before it can be looted or mooched, made by the effort of every honest man, each to the extent of his ability. An honest man is one who knows that he cannot consume more than he has produced. To trade by means of money is the code of the men of goodwill. Money rests on the axiom that every man is the owner of his mind and his effort. Money allows no power to prescribe the value of your effort except the voluntary choice of the man who is willing to trade you his effort in return. Money permits you to obtain for your goods and your labor that which they are worth to the men who buy them, but no more. Money permits no deals except those to mutual benefit by the unforced judgment of the traders. Money demands of you the recognition that men must work for their own benefit and not for their own injury, for their gain, not their loss. The recognition that they are not beasts of burden born to carry the weight of your misery, that you must offer them values, not wounds, that the common bond among men is not the exchange of suffering, but the exchange of goods. Money demands that you sell not your weakness to men's stupidity, but your talent to their reason. It demands that you buy not the shoddiest they offer, but the best that your money can find. And when men live by trade, with reason, not force, as their final arbiter, it is the best product that wins, the best performance, the man of best judgment and highest ability. 
and the degree of a man's productiveness is the degree of his reward. This is the code of existence whose tool and symbol is money. Is this what you consider evil? But money is only a tool. It will take you wherever you wish, but it will not replace you as the driver. It will give you the means for the satisfaction of your desires, but it will not provide you with desires. Money is the scourge of the men who attempt to reverse the law of causality, the men who seek to replace the mind by seizing the products of the mind. Money will not purchase happiness for the man who has no concept of what he wants. Money will not give him a code of values if he's evaded the knowledge of what to value. And it will not provide him with a purpose if he's evaded the choice of what to seek. Money will not buy intelligence for the fool, or admiration for the coward, or respect for the incompetent. The man who attempts to purchase the brains of his superiors to serve him, with his money replacing his judgment, ends up by becoming the victim of his inferiors. The men of intelligence desert him, but the cheats and the frauds come flocking to him, drawn by a law which he has not discovered, that no man may be smaller than his money. Is this the reason why you call it evil? Only the man who does not need it is fit to inherit wealth. The man who would make his own fortune no matter where he started. If an heir is equal to his money, it serves him. If not, it destroys him. But you look on and you cry that money corrupted him. Did it? Or did he corrupt his money? Do not envy a worthless heir. His wealth is not yours, and you would have done no better with it. Do not think that it should have been distributed among you. Loading the world with fifty parasites instead of one would not bring back the dead virtue which was the fortune. Money is a living power that dies without its root. Money will not serve the mind that cannot match it. Is this the reason why you call it evil? Money is your means of survival. The verdict you pronounce upon the source of your livelihood is the verdict you pronounce upon your life. If the source is corrupt, you have damned your existence. Did you get your money by fraud? By pandering to men's vices or men's stupidity? By catering to fools in the hope of getting more than your ability deserves? By lowering your standards? By doing work you despise for purchasers you scorn? If so, then your money will not give you a moment's or a penny's worth of joy. Then all the things you buy will become not a tribute to you, but a reproach. Not an achievement, but a reminder of shame. Then you'll scream that money is evil. Evil because it would not pinch hit for your self-respect. Evil because it would not let you enjoy your own depravity. Is this the root of your hatred of money? Money will always remain an effect and refuse to replace you as the cause. Money is the product of virtue, but it will not give you virtue and it will not redeem your vices. Money will not give you the unearned, 
neither in matter nor in spirit. Is this the root of your hatred of money? Or did you say it's the love of money that's the root of all evil? To love a thing is to know and love its nature. To love money is to know and love the fact that money is the creation of the best power within you, and your paskey to trade your effort for the effort of the best among men. It's the person who would sell his soul for a nickel, who is loudest in proclaiming his hatred of money, and he has good reason to hate it. The lovers of money are willing to work for it. They know they are able to deserve it. Let me give you a tip on a clue to men's characters. The man who damns money is, has obtained it dishonorably. The man who respects it has earned it. Run from your life from any man who tells you that money is evil. That sentence is the leper's bell of an approaching looter. So long as men live together on earth and need means to deal with one another, their only substitute, if they abandon money, is the muzzle of a gun. But money demands of you the highest virtues, if you wish to make it or keep it. Men who have no courage, pride, or self-esteem, men who have no moral sense of their right to their money and are not willing to defend it as they defend their life, men who apologize for being rich, will not remain rich for long. They are the natural bait for the swarms of looters that stay under rocks for centuries but come crawling out at the first smell of a man who begs to be forgiven for the guilt of owning wealth. They will hasten to relieve him of the guilt, and of his life, as he deserves. Then you will see the rise of the men of the double standard, the men who live by force, yet count on those who live by trade to create the value of their looted money, the men who are the hitchhikers of virtue. In a moral society, these are the criminals, and the statutes are written to protect you against them. But when a society establishes criminals by right and looters by law, men who use force to seize the wealth of disarmed victims, then money becomes its creator's avenger. Such looters believe it's safe to rob defenseless men once they've passed a law to disarm them. But their loot becomes the magnet for other looters who get it from them as they got it. Then the race goes not to the ablest at production, but to those most ruthless at brutality. When force is the standard, the murderer wins over the pickpocket. And then that society vanishes in a spread of ruins and slaughter. Do you wish to know whether that day is coming? Watch money. Money is the barometer of a society's virtue. When you see that trading is done, not by consent, but by compulsion. When you see that in order to produce, you need to obtain permission from men who produce nothing. When you see that money is flowing to those who deal, not in goods, but in favors. When you see that men get richer by graft and by pull than by work and your laws don't protect you against them, but protect them against you, when you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, 
you may know then that your society is doomed. Money is so noble a medium that it does not compete with guns and it does not make terms with brutality. It will not permit a country to survive as half property, half loot. Whenever destroyers appear among men, they start by destroying money. For money is men's protection and the base of a moral existence. Destroyers seize gold and leave to its owners a counterfeit pile of paper. This kills all objective standards and delivers men into the arbitrary power of an arbitrary setter of values. Gold was an objective value, an equivalent of wealth produced. Paper is a mortgage on wealth that does not exist, backed by a gun aimed at those who are expected to produce it. Paper is a check drawn by legal looters upon an account which is not theirs, upon the virtue of the victims. Watch for the day when it bounces, marked, account overdrawn. When you have made evil the means of survival, do not expect men to remain good. Do not expect them to stay moral and lose their lives for the purpose of becoming the fodder of the immoral. Do not expect them to produce when production is punished and looting rewarded. Do not ask, who is destroying the world? You are. You stand in the midst of the greatest achievements of the greatest productive civilization, and you wonder why it's crumbling around you while you're damning its lifeblood. Money. You look upon money as the savages did before you, and you wonder why the jungle is creeping back to the edge of your cities. Throughout men's history, money was always seized by looters of one brand or another, whose names changed but whose method remained the same. To seize wealth by force, and to keep the producers bound, demeaned, defamed, deprived of honor. That phrase about the evil of money, which you mouth with such righteous recklessness, comes from a time when wealth was produced by the labor of slaves. Slaves who repeated the motions once discovered by somebody's mind and left unimproved for centuries. So long as production was ruled by force and wealth was obtained by conquest, there was little to conquer. Yet through all the centuries of stagnation and starvation, men exalted the looters as aristocrats of the sword, as aristocrats of birth, as aristocrats of the bureau, and despised the producers as slaves, as traders, as shopkeepers, as industrialists. To the glory of mankind, there was, for the first and only time in history, a country of money. And I have no higher, more reverent tribute to pay to America, for this means a country of reason, justice, freedom, production, achievement. For the first time, man's mind and money were set free, and there were no fortunes by conquest, but only fortunes by work. And instead of swordsmen and slaves, there appeared the real maker of wealth the greatest worker, the highest type of human being, the self-made man, the American industrialist. If you ask me to name the proudest distinction of Americans, I would choose, because it contains all the others, 
the fact that they were the people who created the phrase to make money. No other language or nation had ever used these words before. Men had always thought of wealth as a static quantity, to be seized, begged, inherited, shared, looted, or obtained as a favor. Americans were the first to understand that wealth has to be created. The words, to make money, hold the essence of human morality. Yet, these were the words for which Americans were denounced by the rotted cultures of the looters' continents. Now the looters' credo has brought you to regard your proudest achievements as a hallmark of shame, your prosperity as guilt, your greatest men, the industrialists, as blackguards, and your magnificent factories as the product and property of muscular labor, the labor of whip-driven slaves like the pyramids of Egypt. The rotter who simpers that he sees no difference between the power of the dollar and the power of the whip ought to learn the difference on his own hide, as I think he will. Until and unless you discover that money is the root of all good, you ask for your own destruction. When money ceases to be the tool by which men deal with one another, then men become the tools of men. Blood, whips, and guns, or dollars. Take your choice. There is no other, and your time is running out. For the benefit of you, my valued listeners, I'm attaching the transcript to this speech because there are so many directions you can take the meanings of the words uttered here, and I did my best to recreate the, as I said, the the fact that Francisco Danconia, who is this titan of industry as a as someone who has inherited the fortune of copper production, and and also for context for those of you who don't know or or appreciate at what time this is occurring, this is. I believe she wrote this in the 50s. Yeah, I, I, I could be getting that wrong, but uh, it, even still within, let's, let's call it the early half of the 20th century, the industrialist was a fairly new concept. And that conclusion of his respect and admiration for the American industrialist, which he sort of identifies as, is warranted because... They were pioneers, and and the tenor of this speech that focuses on production and achievement had a greater validity and gold standard to to continue the theme here. And one of the things that struck me just rereading it here is how far removed we are from real production and real achievement. Some of the wealthiest people, not to pick on Bill Gates more than he deserves, but uh, pe- people always refer to him as this genius and this titan of industry. I mean, feel free to research this for yourselves and correct me if I'm wrong, but all he did was stamp his personal copyright and intellectual property on open source material that already existed in the early ages of the internet. And 
that's what gives capitalists a bad name when people do that. And you can say, hey, that man's savvy for doing that and, and literally capitalizing on something that before was public, you know, available in the commons. And now he gets to profit on that forevermore and, and now has Microsoft as the ubiquitous programs and schools throughout the country and a lot of uh, commercial office use as well. But the positives and the optimism I see from a concept that like has been produced here is wanting to return to real value and how you might be able to measure your contribution. And all that is to say from even where I sit, I, I have made my bones in the service industries and sort of an adjunct of that that I'm very intrigued by and, and want to find my way into is what's being deemed the wisdom economy. And I think in the past it's been sort of dismissed as self-help and you know these, these sort of all too positive coaches and I think there's some value there, but the wisdom economy has more to do with the growth and solutions that are necessary for people to heal and come together in order to solve what are the greatest issues of health, sustainable environment, sustainable work practices, medicine, what, what, what is the next uh, landscape of science and achievement and production based on the limited resources we have. And so I, I, I do believe in the downstream effect of that. But to draw some parallels between what I just read and sort of what my, my growing appreciation and understanding of money is, um, I mean, I, I love so much of what is being conveyed here about how it's intended to be the exchange, especially when you look at what your money buys. Uh, luckily, I'm surrounded by people who have coached me on this that, I mean, shoot, if it's your money, it, it seems very counterintuitive to pursue the cheapest options. Why would you buy the cheapest food, the cheapest home, the cheapest materials to renovate your home with or the cheapest car or the cheapest clothes. I mean, what, why, why there, there are whole segments of industries based on the cheapest, especially in this country. And I mean, if we, if we take the example of food, for instance, what that has morphed into is food like stuff. I mean, things that are not really whole foods or nutrition, but they're, it's, it's fake food, it's snacks, it's highly processed food, and that's what's cheap and accessible and convenient. And just from the perspective of money and what it is supposed to be an exchange of, that is very, I always say I'm not easily offended, but that's offended, offensive to think that you're, as we always talked about, my hard-earned money what I sacrifice in terms of my time, my energy, my personal expression, just to get this compensatory sum 
for me to then go use it on something cheap and that does not serve me is degrading in a way. And it is a form of depravity, as Francisco says in here. So I've had to grapple with that. I mean, even as I have gotten more committed to budgeting, and of course we know the phenomenon that that which gets observed gets changed, uh, there's a there's a deeper level to that. I mean, it's I think that's commonly referred to in terms of uh, really really any behavior, but it does come from the scientific community as they, you know, they w- there are a couple of examples. I'm the sort of the hallmark one is eluding me at the moment, but when you come in with a hypothesis and you realize that just by dint of observing something, whether especially if it's something living, it then has its own different behaviors and manifestations that are caused as much as we understand cause and effect by just observing it. And, and to drive this point home, I mean, I think that's more obvious in a concrete way for budgeting that if I asked you, how much do you spend in a month on food? And and let's call that, let's call that grocery shopping as opposed to eating out for food and entertainment. And you don't know then it's hard to conceptualize, let alone plan for, what's a reasonable amount of exchange for, uh, for your, you know, especially that which sustains you. So to, to extrapolate on that a little bit, we, we do need to bring a level of observation to, I mean, this is the whole point in, in the meditation space. It is talked about awareness, but even just being the observer will teach us so much about ourselves and, and what we dedicate our greatest medium of value toward. And, and value is such a loaded word at this point. I, I don't have the information in front of me to give credence to this argument, but, uh, and it's, it's, it's not necessarily an argument, but we are in the midst of a steep decline in the value of the U S dollar, which has grave implications for what we're able to do as a nation and what that means for our economy. And a lot of that has been just the delayed effect of, uh, no longer being on the gold standard. And it's, it's interesting that even in the forties you know, or fifties and whatever timeline you want to ascribe to when the story takes place, that discussion of how paper, you know, the, the legal tender is no longer really anything of substance. And that should disturb all of us because even when we think cash is king and here we are in a time of inflation, it, it still does not have the same value and meaning. And that of course has a, has a broader scope of, um, of reality for all of us that this thing that we devote again, so much of our emotion, time, energy to is not quite as valuable, especially if you were to (laughs) not, not just stack it up against if there were a gold standard, but how about your personal gold standard is your, have, have you calculated the value of your time? That's an exercise I have done intermittently. What, what really is my hourly value? And to what degree do I get to set that? And that's a great challenge for all of us is can we carve out the opportunities for ourselves to set that new rate for our, for our 
worth as much as we vested in money. And this is, I mean, I, I want to round out this discussion. I, I want to speak more about this with someone so we can, so I can have the, the, uh, the dance partner to move around with and to, and to move through these different ideas. But I would have to say the overarching takeaway for me to really sit with is how much more meaning you can ascribe to money because we say, and and this is part of the speech as well, that it it will, money will not pinch hit or stand in for your self-respect, for your value. If you don't have a sense of virtue or principle, it's not going to give you that. If you don't know how to really appreciate something, having more of materials is not going to bring you that appreciation. So this has been part of my personal journey and relationship with money is to not fear it that it's going to corrupt me just by having it. It has much more to do with can I have the respect for money and this, I mean, I think in any relationship that you choose to enter, and yes, there's a necessity for money, can't exist without it, especially in this day and age of inflation and rising cost of living. But if it's a conscious relationship, can I commit to bringing the best of myself to the exchange of money? And even when I'm buying gas, I mean, can I, can I just think about how am I using these miles? You know, <laughs> like, like, is this going to take me to the places where I want to go? Is this vehicle going to be something that serves me and not just another expenditure mindlessly? And there's, there's so much more to unravel here, but for your own benefit, I don't want to cloud your impression of what these words and, and my oration meant to you. But if you have not read this seminal work, you must, because depending on the lens with which you with which you read this book, it can seem very surface level material and capitalism and all that, but I think it has a lot more to offer than that. And with any luck, these words will strike you even differently than they struck me. And that is one of my favorite parts about reading. That's one of my favorite parts about sharing the, the magical things that I've read because they can transform the way we think and what we believe in. And this speech, thanks to the genius of Ms. Rand, has reignited a lot of new thoughts for me. And this is my humble tribute to deliver that to you and hopefully encourage you to think more deeply about value and its exchange and presence through money and what impact that has in your own life. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to me, with me on who's to say.